Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, we have two segments. First, I interview Michael Pramowat, the winner of the Masters Division of the TCG competition at the recent International Championship in London, England. We talk about his deck, his time in London, and what he thinks of the upcoming Sun and Moon cards. The second segment is an archival interview with Ralph Shuckett, a musician who composed the scores for the dubs of the first three Pokemon movies. You'll find out how he got started in music, as well as some behind-the-scenes details of those films. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich, here at the Pokepress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Michael Pramowat, who is the winner in the Masters Division of the recent Pokemon International Championship that was held in London, England. And Michael, we just have a few questions. So first off, uh, where are you from, and how did you get into Pokemon, both the franchise and then to competitive TCG play? Well, I live in uh, Seattle, Washington now, and uh, I'm originally from the East Coast in Virginia, So, and I got started uh, with the Red and Blue games from back, way back. And uh, from there, I just kind of got into the trading card game because uh, some of my friends had the cards, and then uh, we didn't even know there was a game with it, and then I got a theme deck, read the rules, and just started playing from there. What would you say was the first major TCG tournament you went into? Um, the first major tournament I, I, I attended was the Super Trainer Showdown. This was back when Wizards of the Coast had the license for the trading card game. And it was basically the equivalent of a... I think it would the closest equivalent now would be a regionals, yeah in terms of like level but in terms of like prestige it was uh basically like a nationals yeah the super trainer showdown that was sort of like the initial sort of big events they had before wizards ran their their single worlds they had the super trainer showdown which were there was like an east coast and a west coast event each year for a couple years um and they would uh, have qualifying events and bring people out there um Organized play was very different back then than it is now. Um, so moving on from there, for this particular tournament in the uh, in London, you decided to play a uh, Yvettel Garboder deck, uh, which was very popular. It actually, uh, based on some analysis I've heard, was a little over 20% of the Masters metagame at the, the event. Uh, what made you choose that deck for this tournament? Um, well, I haven't played too much since uh, the World Championships, so I wanted to play a deck that I knew I could run. Uh, I didn't want to play anything uh, that was maybe needed to know all the matchups, was like in and out, like you would for Greninja. And I wasn't a fan of like Rainbow Road and Volcanion. It just seemed a little clunky at times, uh, and I had seen the recent success of Evil Tall Garbodor. So I decided to go with that deck. Do you think that that kind of reasoning may have uh, partially explained why so many folks used it at this tournament? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. It, it's one of those decks where it's um, it's pretty easy to pick up, but it has a lot of intricate plays, which is why you see such a uh, large disparity between uh, people who are very good at using it and people who are just kind of picking it up. Uh, there's a very big difference in results that they get. So you'd say it's like a, maybe a, a decently easy to learn but difficult to master type of deck? Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely one of those. You you have to have uh, very good fundamentals of the uh, of the game in order to like properly pilot the deck. And uh, even though it's a very common deck, obviously there is some wiggle room. Uh, your particular deck list does have a little bit of a twist on it. Uh, can you sort of explain that? Yeah. So uh, typically, uh, what people have been using were the the deck list that was. That took first place at regionals in Florida and uh, Fort Wayne, uh, I believe. And uh, those lists uh, had things like Delinquent in it, but it had a running trend of running Trainer's Mail. And I people have been talking about, you know, how many Trainer's Mail do you run? Do you run two, three? Like some people are going down as low as one. And for me, once you go down to the realm of two Trainer's Mail and below, uh, the the consistency boost that you get becomes so so minuscule that I'd rather just have options with things like uh, Escape Rope, Team Flare Grunt, uh, Delinquent, Pokemon Center Lady, things like that. Hmm. And so you went that route. You sort of uh, went without it. Uh, do you think that maybe helped you out in the tournament and helped you eventually win it? Uh, if so, how? Um, yeah, so it definitely helped me win because... Uh, what the cards I, I put in instead of trainer's mail was cards that let me uh, have advantages in certain matchups. For example, um, Escape Rope was very good versus Greninja. Uh, every if they put down a Bursting Balloon, you can get around it with Escape Rope. Uh, Delinquent was one of the MVPs of the deck. You only play two Parallel City, and sometimes your opponent will play down Parallel City in a direction that's not favorable to you. So you, you're you going to want to use Delinquent to replace their Parallel City, and then so you can lay down your own in the direction that would be more favorable to you. So there's a lot of uh, tricky plays that you can do, and it, it ended up being really good. I, I like the list a lot. Anything you think you should have played differently in this tournament, or going forward you might play differently? Uh, I, I definitely think that Evil Tall, if it didn't already have a target on its back, it kind of does. It definitely does have one now. So you really have to take into consideration, like, can you deal with Zebstrika, which is a deck that got played in, and fortunately for me, got ninth place, which uh, made it made sure it was not in the top eight for me to have to contend with. It can be a tricky map because Zebstrika can one-shot your Evil Tall EX, even if you have a Fighting Fury built. So people who want to play Evil Tall going forward are going to need to take that into consideration. Yeah, that was definitely one of the surprises that came out. It didn't quite make it into the top cut for the uh, for the top eight, but definitely one of the surprises we saw at London, and something I think uh, that players should keep an eye out for in the future to see if more people pick that up. Now, of course, uh, one last thing about last weekend's event. Uh, you did spend a couple extra days there. Uh, what did you check out in the city? 
went sightseeing uh, around the city. Uh, so I went to see Big Ben. I went on the London Eye. I saw uh, the Abbey. And I also just went and see uh, what kind of food London had to offer. They're very, uh, there's a very high uh, Indian population in London. So I, I went and got some Indian food and uh, like a bunch of places. The food was good. I liked it. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good food city, and hopefully we'll have some more chances with that with the upcoming international uh, championships. We don't know exactly when or where those will be, but uh, I'm hoping to go to at least one of the ones uh, outside of North America myself, and I, I think, uh, do you think you'll be able to have a chance to go to some other ones besides the North America one? Uh, yeah, I hope I can go. I, I can get to one. Um, I'm not sure where exactly they're going to be outside of North America. But I've been hearing, like, Australia. So we'll see. If, if, if it's, it's, it's definitely easier to, for me to go to an English-speaking country than uh, somewhere else. But even if it's not in, in an English-speaking country, I think I'd, I'd strongly consider going anyways. Yeah, definitely something that's on my uh, to-do list. Very excited about the, the possible opportunity. All right. Well, you did very well at that tournament, and, and we're looking forward a little bit here. So the next logical thing is that we are coming very close to the sun and moon generation of the TCG. Of course, the games came out back in November. The The first set doesn't come out for a couple months. So what are your thoughts on what we've seen so far of the sun and moon TCG? Uh, the set looks pretty fun. Uh, it's definitely a uh, breath of fresh air because... Um, the and the new mechanic of Pokemon GX, they're kind of like EXs back. Uh, the original EXs where they could have been stage ones, stage twos, basics. It, it's all over the place, and it's just whatever the Pokemon happens to be. And uh, the cool thing about these cards is they have a a once per game attack, which is really cool. And depending on how you use that, it can it can come out with some pretty cool strategies. I, I haven't. Uh, delve too deep into the sun and moon uh, strategy, uh, but it, I, I, think, I think it looks very promising. It definitely has some, some different dynamics than what we've seen in the fifth and sixth generation, which are relatively similar to each other. This is definitely a bit of a, a turn here. So we'll have to see what happens. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. And the phone with Michael, the winner in the Masters Division of the TCG competition at the recent London Pokemon International Championship. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich from the PokePress PR and Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Ralph Shuckett, who uh, was involved for much of the first eight seasons of the Pokemon uh, TV show, uh, but in particular he did the dub scores for the first three Pokemon movies. Uh, but before we get into that, Ralph, uh, first of all, uh, how did you get into music? Uh, growing up, uh, did you play any instruments, or uh, how did that work out? Well, we, my, my parents played a lot of music in the house, and uh, we had a piano, and I have an older sister who listened to music pretty much 24-7. So I was exposed to all different kinds of music, and I'm told that even when I was, I don't know, a toddler or 
maybe a year and a half, two years old, I would I would sit in front of the um, the stereo and just kind of rock back and forth to the music. And then, um, so I started messing around with the piano. Um, my parents gave me, got, found me piano teachers, and I took lessons for a few very short periods, and none of the teachers, I was totally bored and didn't enjoy it at all, but I liked to um, sit at the piano and make up my own stuff. So I just messed around by myself. And then when I got into high school, there were other musicians in, in, who went to school with me, and they knew that I played a little, and so they, they asked me to join their bands. So I was in, like, I think three or four different bands when I was in high school, and that's when I really started sort of taking notice of uh, my playing and of songwriting and stuff like that. Um, I had always enjoyed music, and I had always you know, made up music and heard it in my head, but... That was the first time I really sort of did anything with it. And um, I started to listen music to music in a more analytical way so I could figure out what everyone was doing that whose music I liked so I could try and figure out how to play what they were playing. And I would take apart the, um, the arrangements and I'd focus on, gee, what's the bass player doing? What's the drummer doing? What's the guitar player doing? Um, and I really just trained my ear, I guess. Uh, I trained myself, and I saw that I could pick out, eventually pick out chords and pick out melodies and all these different parts. Then I started writing music for my bands, or if we were doing covers, um, I was the arranger, I ended up being the arranger kind of of the covers because I had all these ideas on how to do them, and, and the other guys were just pretty much copying the record. And so I started, you know, suggesting, why don't you play this, and then, you know, I'll play this part, and the drums will do this. And so I always had kind of a composer-arranger point of view. And then uh, once you, uh, you know, got out of high school, uh, graduated, you started to become a professional musician. Uh, what was that like? Well, it was amazing. Uh, I was still playing in various bands, and the caliber of the bands kept improving. And uh, a girl I went to high school with told me about this band that was signed to Elektra Records, a band called Clear Light, um, and they were produced by the same guy who produced The Doors and Janis Joplin, this guy Paul Rothschild, and they were signed to the same label as The Doors, and um, they were looking for another guy because um, their guitar player had quit. And they never thought about a keyboard player, but the, my ex-girlfriend kind of talked them into auditioning me. And uh, so I went to audition for Clear Light, and they liked me, and I joined the band. And from then, it was sort of a snowball, because then I got to learn more about what, what it was like being a professional and being in a recording studio and, you know, writing songs and touring. And uh, I just would meet people, it wasn't even at the beginning really deliberate networking. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I'd meet all these various people who were in the business. And one thing sort of led to another. And um, eventually, I guess, from word of mouth, I started getting recommended to play on recording sessions. And the most prominent ones at that time were, um, I play, I was in Carol King's band, and I played with her and James Taylor. Um, for about 
two or three years. Um, and we did, I think I did three tours with them, two of the United States and one of Europe. And then, you know, the people in those band who played with them were on a much higher level. They got me gigs and they were recommended me for other things. And, you know, working with Carol King and James Taylor, these two amazing songwriters, um, you know, I just learned so much from them and I had so much concert experience and, you know, it just snowballed. And then, um, I guess in 1972, I can't even remember what, oh, I moved to New York in 1972. I, I was in, I was living in Los Angeles where I grew, grew up and I moved to, uh, New York and I didn't really know anybody. I had one friend who was a musician and he introduced me to a bunch of people and then I started all of a sudden, I, I joined his band and then all of a sudden I started playing on a lot of record dates in New York and um I just got busier and busier and uh you know I had a uh, I had a profession as a composer and one of the people you um you met along the way was a a man that uh, a name that should be pretty familiar to uh, uh frequent listeners is uh John Siegler now how did you meet him well actually John Siegler John Siegler when I moved to New York he 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 grew up in the same town as my one friend and um which is Great Neck, New York. And there's just I don't know, tons of well known musicians and re- record executives who grew up in Great Neck. So I met John and, and John was in the band uh, in the band that my my friend was Moogie Klingman and, and the band was called Moogie and the Rhythm Kings. John was the bass player and John and I were roommates and we got to be best friends. And then the person actually that I met was John Leffler, who uh, somebody recommended me to him, and he was a songwriter, and he produced TV commercials. And he and I were writing partners. And he was the one who originally was the contact to do Pokemon. And at that time, I had just moved back to L.A., and so he needed another... Uh, John Leffler was looking for another partner to co-produce with and co-write with. And I recommended John Siegler and he and John Siegler ended up having a long and fruitful relationship as songwriters, co-producers. And that's how John uh, Siegler got involved in Pokemon as a music supervisor and as a collaborator with John Leffler. But John Leffler was the guy who first, you know, got us the work. Um, I can't remember how he did it, but he met somebody at Four Kids Productions, and he ended up being a music supervisor for all their shows. And the first one was Pokemon. So when it came, he called me, um, I guess it was probably about a year before the movie, so it must have been maybe 1998. Yeah, 98 is uh, would have been a year because the movie debuted in U.S. theaters in 1999. Yeah, so he called me um, and asked me if I wanted to do the music for this new TV show he was working on called Pokemon. He said, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask you this, though, because I don't have a budget, but it's a tremendous opportunity for you. Um, You could really pretty much write whatever music you wanted, and it's great experience, it's great exposure, and you'll get royalties from it, but I can't pay you anything up front. 
And at the time, you know, I had a fam, a young family, <clears throat> and I just couldn't afford to do any work for free, even though the back end, um, meaning the performance royalties, ended up being a huge financial success. Um, it was a big gamble. I mean, John and John Siegler and nobody involved, none of the music people involved with the show had any idea that it would be as big as it was. So I turned it down, and uh, I recommended a couple other people for it, and they ended up doing um, the music for the TV show. And then um, when they decided to make a movie, for some reason, uh, so Norman Grossfeld, who is the head writer and producer of all the Pokemon stuff and many of many other four kids productions, John C- John Leffler called me, and, and it turned out that Norman didn't think the other two composers' music was um, cinematic enough, um, and I'm not sure what he meant by that because they're both really great composers, but. Um, he wasn't satisfied with what they did, so he didn't want them to do the movie. And the guy had, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred CDs of well-known film composers on his desk, um, and he was trying to figure out which one to hire, and John Leffler talked me up in a big way and said, you know, this guy Ralph is really great, and he'll just kill it, and you'll love him, and he's, you know. But I didn't really have much film music to speak of. I'd done, John and I had done a lot of music for television, um, and we'd written theme songs to a couple of TV shows, but there was no serious orchestral um, action and emotional music um, on my reel. So Norman said, well, do you mind, how about if I give you a 10-minute cue and you write 10 minutes of music for it? and I can't pay you, but it's your audition, and then if I like it, I'll hire you. So that I, that I was prepared to do, and Norman loved it, so I became, with John Lesser, the composer of the movie. So you had been signed on to do, you know, the, the dub score of the first movie, and uh, basically, you know, you had to come up with an overall uh, style for it, and as well as a couple character themes. Uh, where did those come from? Well, John had seen the movie probably 10 or 12 times before I did, so he had a lot of thoughts about it. And so I flew to New York to spot the movie with Norman Grossfeld and John, John Luther. And so we watched the movie, and every time there was a new character, uh, Norman would stop the movie and he'd explain this character needs a theme, and this is sort of the personality of this character, and so he would explain kind of what he wanted. Um, and some of the stuff he didn't have an opinion about. He would just say, this guy needs a theme. I, I, you know, give me something. I'm not sure what I want. And so we went through the whole movie, and there were also a couple of themes that were like, I think there was a battle theme, and there was a, like a losing battle theme and a winning battle <laughs> theme. And there were some various themes for different types of action. So... Then John Leffler and I watched the movie a few times, and then we just sat in a room and we came up with these themes that Norman had, you know, requested. And then we played them for him, and he liked them. And then the next step was for me to orchestrate the movie for an orchestra. 
And uh, it was a real harrowing time because there was very little time to do it. Four Kids Productions, all their shows, they do very quickly. And so when it gets down to doing the music, which is the last thing they do, there's no time, you know. <laughs> so um, it was a big kind of high-pressure situ- situation. And um, John sort of locked me in this room at Rave Music, which was John's company. And I had all these themes, and I had uh, a video of the movie. And with Norman, we spotted every cue. And a, a cue is, is a certain sequence in the movie. And um, so then I would just, I take, took the themes and I started orchestrating um, the music uh, in a, you know, with a computer doing, doing it on MIDI. I had several MIDI keyboards and I did a mock-up score. And every time I finished a clump of cues, um, John and I would play them for Norman and he would, he might have a rewrite idea, but most of them he just said, okay, I like that. And um, it was a whole, it was, I guess, I don't know, I think it was about six weeks that I had, and I had to hire, I had never done music of that length and scope, so I was kind of pretty innocent as to the procedure, and after I got maybe halfway through, after the third week, it became very apparent that I didn't have time to orchestrate the entire movie, so we had to hire some orchestrators slash composers slash programmers to help me complete uh, the movie. And so basically they, they listened to my style, which was based on Norman Grossfeld's taste, really, what he was looking for that John and I interpreted because I would bring him, we would bring him a cue and he'd say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not getting an emotional thrill or I'm not getting the pathos in this scene. I'm not getting the feeling of triumph. I'm not, it's not, it's boring. It's not, it's not action. A lot of the action music we wrote had, you know, really cool contemporary drum beats and synthesizers and, and a lot of what contemporary action movie was at the time and still is. But Norman didn't want that. He wanted classical, almost like um, overly emotional music, let's say, that was written like films from the 30s and 40s, where the music is just really, really emotional. And, and many people in contemporary film writing would think it was corny and out of date. But Norman really, he really wanted that type of feeling. So after couple of weeks of working with Norman, I, you know, finally I got what he was looking for. And then, you know, I, I got a couple of orchestrators in to help me. And um, I played them the cues that were approved by Norman so they could see what the style was. And then I put them to work. And I'd, usually I'd map out a cue. I'd map out the themes. I'd do sort of a broad strokes arrangement and they did all the filling in. You know, they made it sound really good because they were all great orchestrators, very, very well schooled and classically trained, and had a lot of experience doing films. And then we did the orchestral day, and it was a success. The entire movie is not a live orchestra. It's probably about half and half. Half of the music is done uh, with MIDI samples, orchestral samples, 
and the other half is done with a live orchestra because there is just no budget to do the entire score and no time to do the entire score for a live orchestra. So the whole thing was kind of a roller coaster ride where I didn't get any sleep for six weeks and it was a real rush and but at the same time it was it was really exciting. It was kind of uh anxiety provoking but at the same time it was it was cha- a good challenge and an educational experience. And then we when when all the music was done then we did the final mix for the film and the film came out and uh by that time the show was huge. Um, which none of us expected. In fact, there wouldn't have been a movie if the show hadn't been successful. It was it was just a really big thing, and John Loeffler and I went to the premiere in, in L.A. at the Grauman's Chinese Theater, and uh, it was packed, and it was it was a big deal, and there was a lot of press, and the Pokemon movie ended up being an enormously popular, successful feature film. And since the first movie was, you know, very successful, um, it obviously they brought over the, you know, the next movie, 2000, uh, the following year. Um, how did you get uh, contacted to come on again for that one? Well, just you know, we had a good thing going for the first one, so you know, Norman decided to have us do the second one, and I was the sole composer on that one because. John Leffler is, he's kind of a broad strokes, you know, overview guy. He gets really bored with the details. He's always got several projects going, and so he's more of a, he plays an executive producer role. And so I became the the only composer because John didn't really have time to sit there with me and go to every spotting meeting and have every meeting with Norman. So you had been chosen, and you were going to do the the score for the second movie. Uh, first of all, what was the overall uh, sort of feel you're going for? It definitely, to me, has a, a very maritime feel. Uh, how did you go about doing that in the score? Well, Norman wanted... <clears throat> I don't even think the word maritime or nautical or, you know, ocean... I, I don't even think that particular description was ever given, although... Obviously, the character and all the most of the action takes place um, on the ocean. Norman wanted a theme that was kind of a timeless, um, almost like a folk melody, meaning it wasn't from any particular period of time. And and the whole thing was the legend. I guess uh, Lugio, if I remember correctly, was a legendary character at first. Yeah, more so than, like, the movies always focus on legendary Pokemon, but Lugia specifically had, um, unlike the first movie, uh, an actual legend associated with it. Right. So Norma wanted a leg- the legend theme, kind of like a simple, timeless, heroic theme that's almost like a folk melody or like an Irish folk song. To be honest, I can't even remember the entire theme, but if I remember correctly, um, it's pentatonic music, meaning um, there's only five notes in the scale. And if you listen to a lot of uh, ancient Irish music, and the same is true of pretty much uh, native music from all over the world, where, whether it be Native Americans or Africans or Asians, it's all pentatonic music. 
So that's what that theme ended up being. And so it has sort of a primitive feeling too, which goes along with the ancient Irish tribes and goes along with the timelessness and the sort of legendary status of Lugia. And so that was kind of what our direction was. And um, I think, I can't remember, but John Leffler might have written that theme with me. I think he did. And yeah, and that theme is used, you know, throughout the movie. And uh, it, obviously, it, it starts at the beginning, comes in at various points, and it sort of culminates in the end, uh, in that big scene where you know the world is set back uh, into balance. And then in the end credits, you have uh, Donna Summer doing um, the Power of One, which borrows. Just to be clear, the um, melody came from the score, and then was brought into the Power of One song at the end. Um, what was that like hearing it transformed like that into a, an actual vocal song? What was that like? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't remember the actual moment that I heard it, so um, I don't remember my first reaction, but I'm sure I loved it. I mean, I'm a big Donna Summer fan. You know, I probably, I probably to be honest, I probably thought, hey, we could have written a song that's good as that or better or something, you know, because we were, you know, John and I were very competitive. You know, we wanted to do everything. <laughs> so, uh, but there was, there just was no time, you know. At that time in my life, I was kind of like maybe sort of arrogant. So, but to be honest, I don't remember. That's just a guess. <laughs> now I'm a lot more, a lot humbler. And uh, you, you did end up doing one more uh, one more movie score. It was uh, the third movie, um, you know, Spell of the Unknown. And uh, it, it's maybe the score there isn't quite as famous. It was uh, never released fully on CD or anything. But what was the, the sort of the atmosphere for that one? Well, that one, um, the main character was a little girl. And so the sort of the atmosphere of a lot of the cues had that in mind so it was a little more for lack of a better word romantic and feminine i guess so the overall kind of complexion of the melodies and the way they were treated might have been a little more a little softer and less dissonant but then she got angry and if i remember correctly she was quite a quite a formidable Pokemon, a Pokemon master, that's what they're called. And so, you know, when it came time to do the battles, she, she, she was no longer, it was no longer little girl music. It was more just, you know, full on battle music. And so one of the, the big plot details about the movie is that the girl, her father has vanished uh, for most of the film. And, and so um, basically what happens is that this, this other Pokemon, the legendary Entei, uh, kind of appears and there's sort of uh, a relationship, sort of a surrogate father there. How does that, how does that play into the music? Uh, yeah, well, Entei was sort of her, he, he sort of took the place of her father in that he protected her and he watched over her. And he was very courageous, but he was kind of like the, you know, the peaceful warrior. So the music was supposed to reflect that and it had sort of almost, almost a military kind of a feeling. So he was her surrogate father, and then eventually when she found her father, 
oh man, the details, but there's, there's, there's a really, there's a really dramatic scene towards the end where Ente, um, is battling somebody and he's really suffering, but he's hanging in there with tremendous courage and strength and all to protect the, the, the little girl character. I can't remember her name. <laughs> and so that music is very, very emotional and, but it incorporates his sort of heroic military theme, uh, within the, the, the emotion of the struggle that he's going through. All right, and of course, the other major character is, uh, you could say, collectively, is the unknown, the symbol-shaped Pokemon that looked like letters. They're more mysterious. What was the sort of the instrumentation choices for those? Uh, well, the instrumentation actually, I don't think was any different. I think for all three movies, uh, the instrumentation for most of the cues was um, pretty traditional orchestral instruments, if I'm not mistaken. Although the third movie, we were allowed to, there's a couple of cues that have more contemporary kind of electronica drum tracks and stuff. So the instrumentation generally was was not particularly different, but the unknown music is very weird and sort of eerie sounding. Um, it's almost like music from a horror movie or a mystery in, let's say, the 40s um, or the 30s or 40s in that it's, it's harmonically uh, kind of advanced and complex as opposed to 99% of contemporary music, if not 100% of it, is not harmonically complex. You know, in fact, nowadays the hit songs have maybe three chords, if that many. So, my music in that movie um, is eerie in this, in more of in a, in a classic traditional filmic way, rather than having strange electronic sounds or or, or sound design. Uh, create the eeriness. So it's all in the harmony and the melodies of the unknown themes and whatever they happen to be doing at the time. And uh, after the third movie, they started using the Japanese scores uh, for the remaining films. Um, however, were you still involved in the series in any way? Did you work on the TV show at all? Um, I did a little composing for the TV show for um, specific uh, cues for which they didn't have already existing music, but what what was great for me was that they started using the film music in the mo in the TV show, and because tradition usually a composer makes more money from the television performances, the lion's share of our income is it's called performance royalties when when a, one of our shows is on. So even though you you know you you stopped being directly involved as much as you were in the early part after the third movie, uh, you still had definitely an impact on the series going forward, which is uh, really great. You know, since then you've sort of um, moved on, and now you're actually you actually teach music um, instruments as well as uh, compositional techniques. Uh, what's that like? Oh, it's great. I love it. I started teaching about five years ago. I'm not formally trained myself. 
I didn't go to music school. I didn't take classical harmony and theory lessons, but I have done a lot of studying of of music scores and listening to the pieces uh, on my own. And I and I have a lot of friends who are uh, wonderful orchestrators and arrangers who have given me some tips. But with my students, basically what I do is a student comes in and whatever the student or if it's a child, the student's parents want them to learn, I will teach it. So I don't have a specific method, but I have a lot of, most of my students are adults and most of them are either film composers or TV composers or they are people in rock bands or they're singer-songwriters or they're wannabe film composers. So they need to learn really fast <laughs> because they want to further their careers and they have jobs or they want to get jobs. So I try to consolidate all the stuff I've learned in 40 years of experience into what would be useful to them at the time. Because when you learn harmony and theory and classical orchestration, you spend years on a lot of stuff that you would never get hired for because it's dated sounding. And so I, what I have to teach him is not that sophisticated. And um, I don't waste time. I'm not like a go-by-the-book person because I didn't learn by the book. So I try and encapsulate all my knowledge into whatever they happen to need at the time. And some of them have been with me since I started teaching because they like to learn. And some of them, uh, most of them, I'll teach them for a few months and then they don't need me anymore because um, I've taught them a, a lot of tricks that I've learned and then I also teach them how to teach themselves. And, uh, you know, if folks are interested in your teaching and uh, they happen to live in the L.A. area, you're actually listed on a couple of websites where they can uh, possibly uh, contact you. Uh, what are those? Yeah, well, there uh, I... My website isn't ready yet, so and and eventually what I'm doing is I'm going to be set up for online lessons, and I'm going to have uh, some lessons um, for free on YouTube, but I'm still working on all that. So um, the best way to reach me would be uh, there's a there are two websites that I'm registered with. Um, one is called PrivateLessons.com, and the other one is called GetLessons.com. And um, so I'm one of the teachers on their roster, and there's contact information for me uh, at both of those places. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ralph. It's been uh, great having you uh, on and uh, giving us some really, really neat information. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, working on the Pokemon stuff and on the, all the four kids shows on the air, it was it's sort of been my main gig up up until about three years ago, so it's uh, very dear to me, and uh, so I like to talk about it. All right, well, this has been Stephen Reich from the Pokefresh PIRN Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Ralph Suckett, who was involved with quite a bit of the Pokemon uh, dub, but uh, specifically uh, he did the scores for the first three movies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter.
Hi everyone, Steven here. One other thing I wanted you to know is that although the final interview is about 30 minutes long, we actually recorded over an hour of audio. For the most part, the stuff that was cut isn't noteworthy, but there are a few pieces I'd like to share. My older sister was a big fan of um, blues and R&B and jazz, and she was about 11, 10, 11 years older than I was. And so when I was, I guess, seven maybe, she was in college, and she just used to indoctrinate me, you know, about the music she liked, you know. And, and she was uh, really highly opinionated, and she, she would recommend stuff to me, and, or I would listen to records that she had around the house. And she would say, no, this is cool, this isn't cool, you know. And, uh, and she also took me to clubs to see bands. But just I would, you know, I saw all these amazing people play, and I was in a small club in the front row, so I was practically on top of them, and I got to see everything they did, and I heard everything they did, and it was just, it just blew me away. It was so amazing and spectacular and inspiring that, um, you know, it sort of made me take music more seriously. And he, Norman Grossfeld was a musician in, in a past life. Uh, he played the trumpet. And he knew a lot about music, and he was very specific about certain types of things that he wanted, which was really great because it taught me. It was like going to going to music school. It was like going to school for film film scoring. But by the end of the movie, um, I knew how to, I knew what Norman wanted, and um, I learned a lot from all those orchestrators, and um, and they were also copyists, which means like. At the time of the first movie, the parts for the every separate player in the orchestra, each one had to have their own parts. So I would write the score on a huge piece, you know, tablet of huge paper um, that had all the instruments on it. And then there was what is called a copyist who basically by hand copies what I have on the score for the individual parts of every musician. And um, so that's what these guys did after, you know, once once all the cues had been finished and approved in their in their MIDI form. And interestingly enough, maybe seventy five percent of contemporary pop songs are pentatonic. <laughs> 